All right, let's begin the week with the New York Times, a former newspaper, and that rambunctious collection of clowns and blackguards they call their op-ed page. But we like to call it Knucklehead Row. This weekend, the knuckleheads at Knucklehead Row outdid themselves in knuckleheadedness with an op-ed entitled Stormy Daniels, Feminist Hero. And yes, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, Clavin, you're such a funny guy. How I love your hilarious satire. And you're good looking, too. But no, so help me, this is a real op-ed by Jill Filipovic. Miss Filipovic says Stormy, Stormy Daniels is a feminist hero because she is not ashamed of being a porn star who had an affair with a married man and then blackmailed him and then refused to honor the deal she agreed to when she was paid off because she saw an opportunity to get more money and attention. And her lack of shame for doing these things makes her a feminist hero because now feminists can imitate her by doing immoral, degrading, self-destructive, and utterly humiliating things without being ashamed. So, yay. From now on, all across America, New York Times reading feminist moms and their absolutely miserable husbands will be teaching their daughters to be more like Stormy, maybe by showing them some of Stormy's films, like Dripping Wet Sex 4, Young and Anal, and of course, the unforgettable Tormented, in which she plays Tormented Woman in Sex Scene number 6. And sure, watching movies like that may not turn you into a strong, independent woman, but at least they'll leave you weeping over the degradation of your gender by Stormy Daniels. But you know, there is one way in which Stormy has exhibited feminist independence. She has made her own choices. She chose to sleep with Trump. She chose to commit blackmail. She chose to take hush money, then chose to break her contract and make a spectacle of herself. In fact, everything that's happened to Stormy is because of something she chose. So why is everyone trying to blame Trump? Huh, that's strange. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-dee. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hooray. All right, we got a lot to talk about, and Michael Knowles is going to come on and talk about us, the church and college campuses and all the craziness going on in both places. You know, there's sometimes I come in here after a long weekend and I, I see the machinery on fire and all our connections are down and, the, you know, the copy machine is just spitting out copies of somebody's naked backside over and over again. I think, you know, maybe maybe we should have used ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is the place where growing businesses can go to hire to find the, the new hires that they need. ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire is the place. It sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, and they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Now, we do that here, too, except 
the quality thing is all different. So with results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rating hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That is a good price, free, at this exclusive web address. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire, all one word. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-A-I-L-Y-W-I-R-E. All one word, ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. Try ZipRecruiter for free. It is the smartest way to hire. So we got a lot of things going on over this. This what truly was a Clavenless weekend. Uh, Senator John McCain died. There was a shooting in uh, in Florida at a gaming place. And um, even Neil Simon died. We shouldn't let that go unmentioned. Neil Simon, one of the kind of great comedy writers of the last generation, kind of he became obsolete as Woody Allen and Irony came in on board. But he created The Odd Couple. He did a lot of he was one of the writers on your show of shows back in the day. So he was really a major force in comedy. He died at 91. Uh, But I want to talk about McCain's death. You know, before I talk about McCain's death and and the shooting a little bit. I, want, I just want to talk about the reaction to it, because I'm sure you're listening to other shows. I'm sure you've heard the news. You know who John McCain is. You know he died. You know, that, that is, it is a sad thing. A man was a patriot and a hero. No question about it. Uh, it is sad when a, a man like that passes. He was in his 80s. He said he had uh, been blessed with a life uh, full of blessings, certainly a life of importance and uh, fulfillment. And so, it, you know, he, he said himself that this was, you know, death comes. Nobody gets out of here alive, as he said. And I think that we understand that. So I don't think... I think I have to talk that much about that. But what I do want to talk about is the structure of our reaction. You know, a lot of times when I go around talking to conservatives, trying to get them more interested in the culture, because I feel the culture affects attitudes over the course of 20 years down the line. And, and when you get to that place and it's all a big emergency because people are voting for a president who says he's going to fundamentally transform the greatest country on earth, it's too late. You know, it's too late to uh, to change things. So you got to get involved in the culture. Now, one of the things I always tell people is that conservative culture doesn't look like conservative life. In conservative life, you try to be true to your wife, you try to do the right thing. But sometimes when you're watching the culture show about a gangster, like the Sopranos can can show those values in operation by showing the opposite of those values at work. And one of the points I always make about the Sopranos is that David Chase, who created the Sopranos, had worked in TV all his life. And I think that he understood that the the structure of a TV story is different than the structure of all other stories, the classical Western story. In the classical Western story, a man enters a situation or a woman enters a situation that is perfectly designed to touch at his personal tragic flaws or comic peccadilloes. And because of that, the situation goes through an arc in which the character is in some way transformed or simply killed by the situation that he's in, in this unique way that somehow speaks into the heart of all people. But what David Chase understood is that the television show actually has a, a television series actually has a structure that's more like life. In a television series, the person remains the same, but the events change. So he keeps doing the same thing over and over again. If he's a detective, he solves crimes. If he's a dad in a situation comedy, he deals with hilarious uh, family upsets. But the thing goes on and on again, and it's just the same person, never changing, always doing the same thing. I think it occurred to David Chase that this is hell. This is what hell looks like. You're always the same, and you're always doing the same things over and over again. And that is why he put Tony Soprano, this evil gangster, into hell. And I think it's a very moral show because of that. But when I look at social media and when I look at the news media reacting to an event like Senator McCain's death, 
I feel like I'm in hell. I feel like America has now entered a social media and news media hell where every event just repeats the same pattern again and again. A man like McCain dies. We all know that over and above our disagreements with him, over and above personal traits that we might have disliked, over and above the mistakes he made, there was a man. Here was an American man, and to say somebody is an American man is high praise. To say somebody is a, ma- a man who operated as a man and as an American at the same time for all of his life, that to me is high praise because what, of, what America stands for and what McCain stands for. So what's your immediate reaction? He, he dies. You didn't know him. You're not grieving in your heart. But you send out a tweet that says, R.I.P. McCain, right? And that lasts, that message lasts for five minutes on Twitter or on Facebook, people saying respectful things and goodbye to this guy. And then the politics start and they are all, it's always the same thing. There are a couple of people who climb out from under the rocks and start saying, no, no, not all right. He'll burn in hell. Okay. Those are the people who climb up from under the rocks. Those are one thing. But it's then the other people who say, start using their tribute to McCain as a way to show that other people are not paying tribute to McCain in quite the way they should be. Or they want to show you how McCain was something that Donald Trump is not. Now, that's mostly on the left. What they do, you know, on the left, the only good Republican is a dead Republican. They hate Ronald Reagan. They hate George W. Bush. He's a Nazi. They hated John McCain. They called him racist. They called him old. They always loved him when he wasn't running against one of theirs because then he was kind of a moderate Republican who would cross the aisle, who did do things that drove the right crazy. He was not a big right winger. He was not a big conservative except in very small ways, but he was always uh, annoying the base. And so the left loved him for that. But the minute he was running against Barack Obama, oh, how old he was. He was so old. And wasn't that a racist, you know, whistle? And, And now suddenly he's dead. If only, if only the Republicans were like John McCain, what a wonderful American he was. And so they used the guy's death as immediately as a political attack. And then, of course, the people on the other side start saying, you know, on our side, they start saying, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're praising him now because he's dead, but you didn't praise him when he was alive. Here's, I let me tweet your news story where you said this. I mean, Don Lemon especially was like, you know, he was, you know, that thing Don Lemon does where he's so sincere and so, you know, and now he was one of the guys saying, you know, the question about John McCain is, wasn't he really a racist? Wasn't he really, you know, starting this racist thing? So the guy's death becomes a political battleground. And personally, I personally feel that if I send out a tweet saying what I would normally say, which is, you know, an American man, a big loss, RIP, McCain, I feel like I'm virtue signaling. I feel like I'm saying, see, folks, this is how it's done and you stink. You know? I mean, so you cannot even say, you cannot even return, return to the normal, uh, the normal ways we would approach death. Here's the thing about death. Okay, death is appalling. If you don't know this, it's because you're young. Young people don't have to know this, but because they don't know it, they should be reading great work. They should read the newspaper, but they should also be reading Shakespeare. They should also be reading the Greek tragedy. You've got to learn that this is what life is about. Life is life. Just like Donald Trump doesn't take place in a world that doesn't have Democrats in it. He's part of a world that has other things. Life takes place in the shadow of appalling death. It completely erases people from the face of the earth. And that's appalling. And so when we see death and when we realize death is our common goal, we stop a minute. You know, there's nothing wrong with stopping a minute and saying, ah, let us take the best look at this man's life. Because when we go, and guess what? 
We will. We want people to do that for us because we all make mistakes. We all have people who hate us. Just a minute, just a minute to pause. And and it's not, you know, I, here's, a, here's a time. You know what I think about the mainstream media. You know how corrupt I think they are. But here's a, a place where I feel that the people who attacked Senator McCain on political grounds and then praised him at his death were not doing anything wrong. You know, I had a friend, a next door neighbor, who, and we were good friends and we would play tennis together. And he was a liberal and we would fight like cats and dogs. In fact, cats and dogs had nothing on us. I mean, we would scream and we would, he would come over at my house and I would go over his house. We would sit at the dinner table and we would scream at each other. I remember once getting so angry, I actually slapped the table with my hand at a dinner. You know, this is a dinner. This is over a civilized dinner. And then at some point in the conversation, every single time we would stop, we would calm down, we would raise a glass and we would say, praise God, we live in a country where you and I can sit and say these things to one another and still be friends and, and nobody comes and tells us what to say. And that was, our, uh, that was a big part of our relationship. And it was good for both of us to have, hear the other side from somebody we respected and liked. My friend got cancer and it wasn't just cancer, it was a death sentence. They told him he got a year, that's it, it's over. And I would st- obviously I would still see him, I'd still invite him over and we'd bump into each other even as he got uh, too weak to visit. And I... He would still try to start political arguments with me, and I couldn't argue with him. I couldn't do it because I just felt, you know, you're dying. Don't think about this anymore. You're leaving this behind. And when he died, I realized I was wrong. I should have argued with him because as long as you're alive, you're in the fight. As long as you're alive, you are in the fight. It is right to fight. I mean, it is, it's, it's dead people who stop fighting. You know, living people have to fight for what they think is right, what they think is good. So I, I have nothing against the left for saying that, oh, I hate McCain or I like McCain when he's not running against Obama and then praising him. And and I got nothing against uh, people who said, um, you know, like me, who I disagreed with a lot of what John McCain did. I thought he made life too personal, I made politics too personal. I thought he was wrong to uh, come and vote against the repeal of Obamacare when he ran on the repeal of Obamacare. He, I thought McCain-Feingold was a, a, an atrocity and all this. But I realized that when this guy dies, you stop for a minute and remember what he was. You know, let's go back to his acceptance of the nomination when he was running for president. And he talked about how he got caught in how he was captured in Vietnam. And they came to him and they offered him his release because his father was an important admiral and they knew it would be a good, it would be good politics to offer him a release. Here is um, John McCain. Uh, uh, you know, John McCain stood up and he talked about the fact that they came to him and they said, um, they said, we'll let you go. And he said, you know, the rule is that I will not go until you let the people who were captured before me go. I mean, that's an amazing thing to have said. Uh, and he, he stayed. And after that, they started to just absolutely brutalize him. I was in solitary confinement when my captors offered to release me. I knew why. If I went home, they would use it as propaganda to demoralize my fellow prisoners. Our code said we could only go home in the order of our capture. And there were men who had been shot down long before me. I thought about it, though. I wasn't in great shape, and I missed everything about America, but I turned it down. A lot of prisoners had it a lot worse than I did. I'd been mistreated before, but not as badly as many others. I always liked to strut a little after I'd been roughed up to show the other guys I was tough enough to take it. But after I turned down their offer, they worked me over harder than they ever had before for a long time. 
and they broke me. When they brought me back to my cell, I was hurt and ashamed, and I didn't know how I could face my fellow prisoners. The good man in the cell next door to me, my friend Bob Craner, saved me. Through taps on a wall, he told me I had fought as hard as I could. No man can always stand alone. And then he told me to get back up and fight again for my country and for the men I had the honor to serve with because every day they fought for me. This is an act of insane courage and insane patriotism. And he says that he learned to love America in another country's prison. He learned, he said, after that moment, after he had sacrificed himself, he was no, his life was no longer his own. It belonged to America. And that's an amazing, you know, when somebody says that, when people got all upset at Donald Trump for saying, you know, I prefer my, uh, my war heroes to have not been captured or whatever it was he said, that's why. That's why they said that, you know, they said it because um, they, they said it because that was a small, mean thing to say. But this is not the time. You know, the, the New York Times op ed, what like all they had in that op ed were just relentless attacks on Donald Trump. This isn't even the time to remember what Donald Trump said. It's not that time. It is not that time. It, now is the time to sit and remember who McCain was and what he did. And that and that's, you know, that's so simple. It's so simple. But we can't do it. And the same is true. The same is true in this shooting that took place. They're playing video games in a contest in uh, Florida. It was They're playing Madden. So it's not a violent video game. There's nothing like this going on. And one of the kids who was playing, or he wasn't a kid. He was a young man, was playing. He lost. He went home, got a gun, and opened fire, killed two people, wounded 10 or 11, I think. Still, you know, how the numbers haven't quite come in. And Immediately, we do the same thing. Thoughts and prayers. Oh, thoughts and prayers aren't enough. You need, you need, you know, gun reform. Well, guns aren't the point. The point. Well, we've got to do it right now while everybody's panicked and we'll make mistakes. You know, uh, you know, this is not the time. Yes, this is the time. And of course, Dana Lash. All, all, like it's like everybody on earth has to call Dana Lash a word I can't even like indicate on this this program. They just come out with this. Dana Lash puts out a screenshot of people saying the only way these people learn, meaning NRA supporters learn, is if it affects them directly. So if Dana Lash has to have her children murdered before she'll understand, I guess that's what needs to happen. Dana Lash's children have to be murdered. This is on Twitter. So she writes to Twitter and says, you know, this, my children were threatened on Twitter. And Twitter says, yeah, this doesn't violate our standards. It doesn't violate our standards. You know, Alex Jones violates their standards because they did eventually start to delay him. They didn't totally pull him down. But that, so, so it's, it's like hell. It's the same thing repeating over and over again. It's every time there's a shooting. It's every time a prominent person dies. We have to watch this, this charade go on where we descend into like this rage and hatred. I mean, it's, it's not healthy. It's not good. You know, it's not a, it's not a good thing for us to be doing. Again, we should be fighting. We should be fighting because we disagree. But we should be able to stop just for a minute, just for a day, one day. The world is not going to go away in a day. All our troubles will still be here tomorrow if we take a minute and salute the guy. You know, I mean, all, these, all our troubles will still be here tomorrow if we take a minute and say thoughts and prayers for the people who were killed in Florida. You know, that's all, that's all it takes. That's all it takes. And this hell. So why, why are we in hell? Why are we stuck in this, uh, in this round? And I think the reason is, is actually pretty simple. I think it's because 
we aren't talking about the thing we actually disagree about, which is the baseline, the baseline of our disagreement. One side believes in what America was made to be, what it was made by the founders to be. Very simple, very simple. The founders said, we want people to be free. We don't want them taxed without representation. We don't want them told what to do by distant rulers who don't have their interests at heart. How do we do that? Knowing, knowing that men are not angels, knowing that they need a government, knowing that people in power want more power, knowing that government grows, how do we stop it from consuming this moment of freedom that is created as if by God on the planet, this moment when we can invent individual freedom. And they did it by inventing this kind of Rube Goldberg. Does anybody remember what a Rube Goldberg machine is? Yeah, okay, it's like Mousetrap, that game Mousetrap, where one thing knocks over another. They invented this Rube Goldberg machine to keep freedom alive, have the uh, bases of power fighting with each other, have the judiciary uh, ruling over them, you know, whether things are constitution, have the constitution guide all and protect the minority, have the president have certain powers, but only certain powers, have the federal government have powers and the state have powers, make sure everybody has guns so they can kill each other if they disagree. You know, that is basically this kind of rickety old machine that they built that has worked for over 200 years amazingly. I mean, it is the longest lasting constitution on the face of the planet. So one side of us is saying, one side is saying, you know, I mean, this is why when it comes to the Supreme Court, it is not a fair argument. One side is saying we want our Supreme Court guys to go in there and give us rights to abortion and to give us rights to gay marriage. And the other side is saying, hey, that's not the question. The question is, will you do your job in the Rube Goldberg machine? Will you do your little piece and knock over the marble that flows down here so we can make the laws in our localities, but you will keep the, the machine alive by upholding the Constitution? That's the difference between us. And if we're not talking about that difference, we're not talking about anything. If we're talking about abortion, we don't agree on abortion. I get it. But do we agree on the Supreme Court's role on abortion? That's the question that we're never talking about. The other side is saying we want to fundamentally transform this country. We want to, you know, here's, here's a perfect example. All these socialists who are springing up on the ignorant left, these idiots like Alexandria, Google Eyes, Cortez, who just like every time she opens her mouth, I sit there going like, you know, girl, go to college. I mean, get a, get a degree in something other than leftism because you don't know what you're talking about. Let's say we agree on capitalism. Why? Because capitalism keeps us free. You, I make something, you choose whether you want to give me money for it or not. Very simple. The government doesn't tell you what it should cost. We agree between each other what it should cost. It, it, it keeps people free. It's free markets with free choices. That's why we love it. And it, it only works if you leave. And it protects your right to property, which is the result. Your property is the result of your time. Your time is what your life is made of. So it protects the right to property. If we agree on that and we say, you know what, we can do so much good by a little social spending that we're going to violate the rules of capitalism to have a little bit of welfare, a little bit of programs that get people out of the get, you know, just a couple of things. And we say, well, that does violate our principles, but maybe, you know, maybe just to, to, to all get along and maybe because it'll do some good, maybe we'll agree to some of that social spending to keep capitalism alive. If we both agree that capitalism is the baseline, then we're arguing about how much can we have before we start to damage capitalism? How much good can we do 
by violating the principle of your property rights. I'm taking your right. I'm taking your earned property away and saying that I know how to spend it better than you. That's a form of slavery, right? Uh, the state is saying, give me that money that you earned and I'm going to spend it because you would just spend it on a restaurant or a local business or give it to charity. But no, no, no. I'm the expert. I know better than you and I'm going to do this. When we argue in those terms, when we both agree on the baseline, we can have that argument. We can make some compromises. I'll stand down a little bit. I won't be absolute about my principles because we're all living in the same country. But when you tell me, when I know that your ultimate goal is to destroy the free market system, then every single thing you say is a step toward that goal and I will have none of it. If I know that you want to take guns away so I can no longer defend my freedom from my home, Every single restriction you want, whether it's on bump stocks, whether it's on bazookas, whether it's on nuclear weapons, every single step you take is wrong. See, if you say, you know what, I favor the Second Amendment, I will write it down, I will never stop favoring the Second Amendment, you have the right, here's a reason why there might be a restriction, then maybe we can talk. But how can we talk? How can we have a conversation if I know, I know you are trying to destroy the very system that gave us everything that we have? If you're trying to destroy the capitalism, if you're trying to destroy the gun rights, if you're trying to destroy the First Amendment, which is the big one for me, I will. St- Donald Trump can pay off the entire rockets if he wants. If you are not for the First Amendment, if you're Facebook and you're taking down Dennis Prager, if you're Google and you're putting all the liberal uh, answers to have them all come up first in your algorithm, if you are the Democrats and voting to rewrite the First Amendment, if you're the mainstream media and you are lying every single day in order to keep conservative voices off the air and demonize them, uh, Donald Trump can sleep with every single rocket and pay him off, and I don't give a damn. So we have nothing to talk about because we're not talking about the thing we disagree on. We're not, you know, I I can sit with all kinds of liberals and have all kinds of discussions. I was talking about my late friend and how we'd have these discussions because we loved the country. We loved what the country was. We were arguing to get the make the country its best self as the founders imagined it. If at any point he had said to me, what we really need to be is socialist, we wouldn't have been able to just talk about it anymore. We would have just played tennis. You know, I really all want to move on to talking about uh, this, the uh, scandal in the Catholic Church, but I want to bring on Knowles because Knowles actually is a believer in the Catholic Church and he has a very insightful uh, take on this. I know it's hard to believe we're talking about Knowles, but it's absolutely true. But I got to say goodbye to Facebook and to YouTube. And come on over. So please come on over to thedailywire.com and subscribe. You should be giving us your money. Why? Because we want it so much. Also, for just 10 lousy bucks a month and 100 bucks for the year, you get to be in the mailbag. You get Ben, you get Knowles, you get me. And for 100 bucks, you get the Leftist Tears Tumblr, which is all you really need. Michael Knowles coming up. How you doing? Hey, how you doing? I can't believe that's the nicest thing you ever said about me. That I, on rare occasions I have almost some insight. It may be it may be that we went to watch the the Meg uh, yesterday, and the film was so bad that everything you said afterwards just seemed brilliant to me. So I, you know, Drew. But this is a matter, and I suppose we can get to this when we talk about the church. I think I just have lower expectations than you because when I left the Meg, all I could think is, well, that was better than it's. I'm sorry to bother you. It was at least better than that. So. I think once you have seen, I'm sorry to bother you. Everything seems better. I <laughs> yeah. think that meant. So, uh, and and by the way, by the way, I, uh, just to put in a quick plug, because it's not time yet, we're bringing out the second season of Another Kingdom. That's right. On, uh, in October. Um, but, but it'll be out in October, and we are recording it now, and you have done almost, almost halfway. I guess next week we'll get 
through the first half. And I will also say you are doing a spectacular job. Your performance well, thank you. is it's, absolutely it, great. Yeah. Thank you very much. It is always uh, really nice. I do. I don't recommend the job of being an actor because when you're a working actor, <laughs> yeah. it's very hard. But I will say when you are working, it's great because someone <laughs> gives you the words <laughs> I, and you I, just say them. I, I, I could see, though, that you were in your element because you were uh, you had the entire room and absolute stitches. And that was before we started shooting. So that was, <laughs> Oh, thanks. So, Come on. I never met a camera I didn't like. Get out of here. <laughs> you know, I didn't get a chance to get to this thing with the church, so I'm going to put it on you because you really have been keeping up with it, and it is your church. What what happened in this latest letter from the nunzio, and what is a nunzio also? What is, well, nunzio is my uncle. You know, my <laughs> uncle back in the Bronx. The, but the, the nuncio yeah, is yeah. the <laughs> uncle nunzio. Come in, yeah. The, the, yeah. the nuncio is the uh, papal representative to the United States. So the nuncio that we're talking about here, uh, Cardinal Carlo Maria Vigano, was the Vatican's representative to the United States. And okay. let's not forget, <clears throat> the United States and Germany basically fund the Catholic Church. I okay. mean, this is a very important high-level Vatican position. In the uh, in the Catholic Church, there aren't many things that are unprecedented. We've had popes kidnapped by foreign <laughs> yeah, armies. We've right. had, you know, there have been a lot of things. This is an unprecedented event in the history of the Catholic Church. You have a top-level Vatican official accusing the pope of covering up sex abuse, of uh, undoing uh, punishments that were put on an abusive cardinal by Pope Benedict of undoing that and actually giving that cardinal a lot more power. And you have this top Vatican official, Cardinal Vigano, calling on the Pope to resign. This is all but earth shattering news. Now, now the New York Times, a former newspaper reported this today as Vigano, is that how you pronounce it? Vigano. Vigano. Vigano is an enemy of this wonderful liberal Pope. And these are unsubstantiated charges. Is that a fair characterization. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew I'd get a as, laugh anyway. It's yeah. as fair as anything else in the New York Times. Yeah, okay. How's that damning with faint praise? That's absurd. Uh, certainly one could say that Vigano mm. is, uh, is more conservative or has been a critic of aspects of Francis's papacy. But then who among us hasn't been a critic right. of Francis's mm. papacy? He has, uh, Pope Francis has bred a lot of confusion in the church. He seems to contradict millennia of doctrine. And he, he's also been very dismissive, not only to his critics, but to young Catholics who desire uh, orthodoxy and liturgical seriousness. He is, he's dismissed young Catholics who prefer older forms of liturgy mm. as too rigid. And he's suggested that there's some li- psychological problem with these young Catholics. And, and this, said, is why, this is why while conservative churches thrive and liberal churches like the Episcopal Church are vanishing off the face of the earth. Well, that's exactly right. The Catholic yeah. Church will be the Catholic Church or there won't be a Catholic Church. Right, right. There's no, you cannot water it down. The pew's empty. So uh, I, I think that is very uncharitable uh, for, of, of uh, the New York Times, if not uh, higher ups in the clergy. But also this, this report has been substantiated. He's named people here. Uh, Monsignor Jean-François Lanthum, who was a uh, counselor to the uh, nunciate in the United States, uh, was asked for comment on this. His reply to the media is, Vigano said the truth, that's all. And this is an 11-page mm. document that was not given flippantly, like some comments of the Pope, to, to media uh, outlets on, on airplanes and in coffee shops. This, is, uh, this was well thought out. This was well planned. And uh, there's nothing to be gained here. Some, some people like the Times want to say that this is a power play for this cardinal. The cardinal's retired. 
Cardinal Vigano is retired. He has nothing hmm. personally to gain from this, but I think he's unburdening his conscience here. Because now, you know, I've been getting some flack uh, through emails telling me that I, I sound anti-Catholic, and you know, I, I think you know that I am pro-Catholic. In fact, that I think the church is the Catholic Church is an enormously important priesthood. I, I think you're one Benedict away from being Catholic. <laughs> one Benedict. No, if they they struck, they had two they had two incredible home runs, and then they <laughs> uh, they swung and missed. Uh, but, they can't but, win them all. You yeah, know. I know. But but I think the thing is, I, I do believe that uh, as Western civilization is tottering, teetering on the brink, I do believe that priesthoods are immensely important to restore our faith and to bring people back to God. And I'm not against the Catholicism. I am appalled. Like, for instance, the Pope responded to this on the plane, you know, coming back from Ireland. Ireland, which in my lifetime was one of the most Catholic countries on earth, but which just voted to, uh, to legalize abortion with people flying in, flying home from across the world, coming back because they hate the church so much. They're so ticked off at, how, at these abuses in the church that took place, some of which took place in Ireland. The, the Pope responded to this letter by saying, basically, I have no comment. I mean, is that fair? I mean, is that a fair... I just find that appalling. That's exactly what he said. It, yeah. it was it was actually even more on point than that. He said, I will not say one word about this. I think the statement speaks for itself, and you have sufficient journalistic capacity to reach your own conclusion. And it's amazing how when, when the Pope wants to uh, apparently, we don't know because we're not in the conversations with journalists, but when he's when it's being reported that the Pope is speaking freely, questioning millennia of church doctrine, he's perfectly willing to speak. He's loquacious. He's verbose. But when it comes to direct charges, he's he will not respond. And this goes back further than just Vigano's letter. Uh, four prominent uh, cardinals in the church sent dubia to the, to the Pope, five dubia, five questions, including uh, two of those uh, cardinals are now dead, but including Cardinal Burke, who is considered a conservative cardinal, very serious, uh, high-ranking official in the church, and five questions about what the Pope said in apostolic letters uh, that seemed to promote heresy, and he's never responded to those questions. Mm, wow. he, he will not respond to his critics, and, and this is a, a real outrage because this Pope has called for transparency. He's always talking about transparency in the media. He's always talking about the how awful clericalism is, how we need to stop all of the clericalism, and then what do we get as a response to him? He tells the, the bishops, he tells his critics, he tells the public to pound sand. I won't answer these these doubts. This is really horrifying behavior. So the guy is calling for his resignation, and and he's not alone, right? There are other people calling for the Pope's resignation, but I cannot imagine this Pope resigning, so I don't think that's going to happen. What do you think will happen? Well, uh, far be it from me to tell the Holy Father what to do, <laughs> yeah. but uh, he has said before, he actually said back in May, that uh, uh, he believes that bishops should know when it's time to leave, including the Pope. They should know when it's time to leave and retire. Mm. This fueled, in the conspiracy theory realm, this fueled speculation that uh, Pope Benedict was pushed out, although nobody has any hard evidence of that. Uh, but it, this is another example of perhaps the Holy Father might take his own advice. He wants transparency. He wants uh, an end to clericalism. And he thinks that bishops, including the Bishop of Rome, should retire and not die in office. Perhaps he, if these allegations are true, if, if the nuncio's statement is true, then perhaps the Pope might take his own advice. Wow. Wow. All right. So speaking of, of institutions that have been infiltrated by <laughs> by people we disapprove of. Let's talk for a minute about college campuses because over the last weeks, there have been like just few weeks, there have been these incredible number of stories of this 
not only uh, attempts to infiltrate the colleges, but just the fact that they've already been infiltrated coming to light. I mean, I I saw this article about socialists saying we've got to move into the schools. (laughs) Really? (laughs) I couldn't believe it. This is is great because this is from the young Democratic Socialists of America. I didn't know there were old Democratic Socialists. I thought thought Ocasio-Cortez was the oldest one, her and Grandpa Bernie. But uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, they've now said we need to move into the schools. And uh, the this is unsurprising because socialists don't know anything about history, so they don't know. They already did it 50 years ago. I was going to say they're going to displace the socialists in the school and yeah. move, move in socialists instead. You yeah. can tell the old socialists of America clearly succeeded because the young socialists don't know about their own history. But it's pretty interesting what they said. They said we've got to move in here because it is uh, because education is a strategic sector. This goes without saying. They point out that education is well paid. Now, often we hear about teachers not being paid very much. It is worth pointing out, in places like West Virginia, which has some of the lowest teacher pay in the country, teachers are often among the most well-paid members of their community, Mm. which uh, was pointed out by the Democratic Socialists. They also uh, say that teachers have virtually ironclad job security. True. So yeah. if they uh, if they have all of this job security, this is why the socialists are opposing charter schools. They're supporting teacher unions. They're attacking any chance that a young person might have to get an education or to have upward mobility. They're trying to cut off early on. And it makes sense because they can't win in the court of public opinion. This is well, this is the thing. I mean, it seems to me an immediate giveaway, an immediate giveaway. If you say this is my opinion and all other opinions either must be silenced, a la Facebook and Twitter, or you say any other opinion is hateful or literally Hitler, you don't have an argument. If you can't sit down and argue, you don't have an And I was talking about this earlier. The real problem is not that they don't have an argument, but if they make their argument, nobody will, everyone will be horrified because their real argument is to destroy American freedom. And that's what the argument they don't want to make. So they have to silence you before you challenge them. That's exactly right. They can't, you know, they've got, they pick on someone their own size, which is little kids. (laughs) And, (laughs) but this, this goes, you know, their campus reform is one of the great websites for this. Uh And they, they did, this wasn't an academic study, but they went out with a camera and they talked to students in New York after Andrew Cuomo, the governor said America was never great. And they asked these students, what do you think? And all the students said, yeah, America was never great. And uh, a number of them said, yeah, we don't think America was ever great because we were taught in schools. We know the truth. We had a progressive education, so we know the truth. And uh, that's, of course, the case. If you're going to replace textbooks with Howard Zinn, why would you think that America is great? I almost don't blame this generation for their socialism and uh, for their anti-Americanism. They're just so ignorant. It's it's interesting that states-funded schools are teaching them we need a bigger state and it never occurs to them to question that. It's like it's mm-hmm. as if it's as if like schools, you know, funded by AT and T, were saying that you know how we save this is let AT and T take over the world. Yeah. and they were going, yes, now I know the truth. It's that AT and T must rule the world. I mean, but, but it's just, there's an amazing it's, it's, they study. Don't, they're not considering the sources here. And and there's an amazing study that was just out today. I think it was from the University of San Diego that a third of American teenagers have not read a book in the past oh, year. Wow. Now one has to wonder about this. Well, a third of a statistically all American teenagers are supposed to be in school, virtually all of them, <laughs> yeah. and they haven't read a book in the past year. Perhaps there's not something not only wrong with the culture and the generation. Perhaps there's something wrong with the education. Yeah, it does look that way. All right, listen, I got to go, but uh, tell me what's going to be on your show today. So we're going to go into, there's a lot more to be said about this Catholic scandal. We're going to be uh, going very in-depth on it and asking 
uh, what did the Pope know and when did he know it? Uh, then we'll also be talking about uh, corruption at the uh, federal level in American politics. We're going to have Eric Eggers on to talk about his new book on how the left steals elections and how they're going to steal the next one. Oh, cool. You know, I will, I will therefore forward all my, your anti-Catholic letters to you from now on. <laughs> Very good. I'll absolve you in, in my role as lay Catholic uh, <laughs> talk show host. All right. Thanks a lot, Knowles. I appreciate it. See you, Drew. Unbelievable. You know, I always compare if you've seen, I've talked about this before, but you've seen Men in Black where the alien comes and devours the guy and puts on his skin uh, and kind of walks around shambling around. You can tell there's an alien inside the guy's skin, but he sort of still sort of looks like a human being. That is what the left does to every institution, whether it's the New York Times, which really did used to be a newspaper, used to be a good, you know, a little left to center, but still a good, solid newspaper. It's now just a shambling ruin of an institution. Yale University, so many universities that used to be respectable are now now teaching children ignorance, you know, come in and we will make you ignorant. And, you know, I hope they save the Catholic Church because I think we need it desperately. But right this minute, it is not looking as good as it should. All right, let's look to our crappy culture. So CNN and just about everybody else had a bombshell report as they re- always refer to it. I like when they say that, bom- it's a bombshell, because they're telling you. You know, it's like, should be me, shouldn't it be me deciding it's a bombshell? Shouldn't I look at it and say, like, hey, this is a bombshell? But whenever they say bombshell, you know, I think like, all right, I'll be the, I'm the reader, I'll be the judge of that. But they call it a bombshell. This was last week. Michael Cohen, who you know, right, the lawyer who has, uh, you know, quote, flipped on Donald Trump. Here, here, I'll read it. I'll read you the CNN report. Michael Cohen, President Donald Trump's former personal attorney, claims that then-candidate Trump knew in advance about the June 2016 meeting in Trump Tower in which Russians were expected to offer his campaign dirt on Hillary Clinton. Sources with knowledge tell CNN. Cohen, Cohen is willing to make that assertion to special counsel Robert Mueller, thus sources said. Cohen's claim would contradict repeated denials by Trump, Donald Trump Jr., their lawyers and other administration officials who have said that the president knew nothing about the Trump Tower meeting until he was approached about it by the New York Times. Now, this is Lanny Davis, uh, is Michael Cohen's lawyer, and he goes on TV on all the shows that he can get on, and he takes it back. He says, this is what he's saying, just to make it clear that this was an untrue story, but because he was involved in a legal case, he couldn't come out and say so. He couldn't correct it. The reporting of this story got mixed up. And in the course of a criminal investigation, we were not the source of the story. And in the course of a criminal investigation, uh, the advice we were given, uh, those of us dealing with the media, is that we could not do anything other than uh, stay silent. So can you say now whether, in fact, Michael Cohen has information that President Trump was aware either before the Trump Tower meeting that Don Jr. was part of with the Russian attorney claiming to be part uh, from the Kremlin with dirt on Hillary Clinton, either the, that Michael Cohen has information that the president knew about it in advance or knew about it immediately after? Senator Burr and Senator Warner uh, read the answer to the question about his testimony, which is that he said he was not aware uh, ahead of time and did not hear um, anything to the contrary. And that was the testimony before the Senate, as well as the House Intelligence Committees. And he said that that testimony was accurate. So Michael Cohen does not have information that President Trump knew about the Trump Tower meeting with the Russians beforehand or even no, after. does not. 
the story is untrue. And nobody picked this up. I mean, Brett Baer was going nuts. Brett Baer, the last honest man on television, was going absolutely crazy. Why is nobody picking up this story? CNN issues a statement. We stand by our story and are confident in our reporting of it. The story, except, except for the fact that it was untrue. We got everything right except for the facts. That was it. So, you know, there have been zero mistakes. Let's count them. Zero. That's how many mistakes there have been that have benefited Donald Trump. There have been zero errors that have benefited Donald Trump or put Donald Trump in a good light. And, you know, CNN had to come in and say, oh, we're sorry. We put Donald Trump in a good light, but really he did something wrong. Let's count them again. Zero. That's it. None. Right. But they keep making mistakes. All the mistakes are on one side, all the mistakes and they never get corrected. And you see them on Twitter. The mistake gets, you know, 50,000 hits and the correction gets 200. You know, this happens again and again and again. I want to play a piece by Chuck Todd of Chuck Todd. He's talking to CBN's David Brody and CBN is a Christian broadcasting network, right? It's a, a fairly conservative network. David Brody is explaining to him, is explaining to Chuck Todd, this is on Meet the Press, right? So this is not uh, MSNBC Chuck Todd. This is NBC Chuck Todd. We're supposed to be able to tell the difference, right? But Brody is explaining to him why we'll support Donald Trump as long as we know you're lying. You know, as long as you're lying, what difference does it make what you say? And listen to Todd's reaction. I think one of the one of the best things going in Donald Trump's favor, we know this, is the mainstream media. I hate to say it. I know I'm sitting on a Meet the Press roundtable. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is 62 percent think the media is biased. So in other words, if you look at the approval rating of Donald Trump, well, cons- the, approval rating the conservative the media, echo chamber created that but environment. It's, but, it's not. Trump, it's not. No, 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 no. I mean, yeah. it has been a tactic and a tool of the Roger Ailes created yeah, echo yes, chamber. Yes, so let's right. not pretend it's not anything other than that. Well, hang on. Yes and no, because remember, the independence in the, are part of Donald Trump's base. And I think that's very important. Well, a lot of times we say Republicans are Donald Trump's base. Not really. They're, they're, no, it's they're, a separate they're, Trump. It is a different version of the Republican But those Party. independents also distrust the media. This is not just Republicans. It is many Americans across oh, the No, country. no, no. I take your point. I'm right. just saying it was a creation. It was a campaign tactic. It's not like based in much I, fact. I do think... <laughs> Here's a guy smacking Todd in the face with the truth, like a water balloon, like throwing a water balloon in the face of a clown. And Chuck Todd is just, no, 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 no. Fox makes it all up. Ooh, Fox, Fox with its three million views. Ooh, Fox. You know, Fox is what it is because it gives us a different point of view. That's the only reason it is what it is. You guys are jet fuel. Chuck Todd is jet fuel to fact. Here's what I just want to ask. I know I pick on the press a lot because they're lying scum, but but here's what I want to say. Just imagine for a minute, imagine for a minute what America would look like if the press were honest. Not for Trump, not against Trump, just reporting the facts, just letting on enough voices on the right to counter the voices on the left, just putting people in the chairs where the editorial decisions are made, who have voted for all kinds of different people, or have at least voted for both parties, both major parties, I would settle for that. Imagine what America would look like. Then, then we could start having the conversation that has to be had. When now, when Chuck Todd delivers the news, my, my feeling is, I don't believe you. I do not believe you. I mean, I just don't, no matter what he says, even when he does get it right, and they do get it right, I'm not saying they don't, why should I believe them when I know they're constantly spinning, constantly lying, constantly skewing the facts? What would our country be like? What would Twitter be like? What would Facebook be like if everyone spoke and at least the two major parties, at least the two major sides were allowed to speak equally without being demonized? I think we would be much better friends 
all of us. All right, I got to say goodbye. We got more coming, though. The week has just begun. We are out of the Clavenless uh, weekend and into the Claven week. I'm Andrew Claven. This is the Andrew Claven Show, and we'll see you again tomorrow. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And our animations are by Cynthia Angulo and Jacob Jackson. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire forward publishing production. Copyright forward publishing 2018.